You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Up on the screen here, too. Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 John 4.20 to 5.21. Let's hear the word of the Lord. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have we asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is the word of God. Thank you, Heidi. You guys can have a seat.
Uh, so if you're uh, newer to our community, we've been going through this series through the summertime looking at some of these letters from this man named John. If you've read the Bible before, he's one of those original followers of Jesus. And he wrote some letters at different points. And we're going to continue that for the next few weeks. But today we're actually uh, ending First John, the first letter. And the series, we've been talking in this language of intimacy with God. And for some of us, uh, that's a foreign concept because you don't attach intimacy with any kind of religious endeavor at all. And maybe even for some of us who've grown up in the church, it feels weird to talk about intimacy. But I would suggest that's one of the things that really distinguishes the Christian faith from even other religious systems. We obviously believe in a deity and we follow him, we devote ourselves, but there's also a closeness and an intimacy that we would suggest is missing from normal religious ideas. So intimacy with God. We've been looking through this whole um, letter, 1 John, and hopefully you've been catching this idea that it's about relationship. Again, that's a, that might be a word we don't even associate with who Jesus is, but this idea of a relationship. And today we're going to fix our eyes on that idea as we look at the beauty of Jesus. As we look at what does it mean to be in relationship with Jesus and just gazing at his beauty. So we're going to jump into it. But first, I want to start by looking at the last verse of the letter, 1 John 5, 21. It's really interesting. It says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And if you've been reading, and even as Heidi was reading it, that might have seemed like a weird, like did someone edit it wrong? Like there was some weird dude who was on something that day because the rest of the, our letter really flows well, talking about obeying God, knowing him, uh, things that you would, and then the last, it's almost like he ran, like he had a word count. His editors, hey, I need this many letters, so fill it in. Uh, oh, okay, what's career? Okay, keep yourselves from idols. It sounds almost foreign in its placement here, but I, I think if we understand what is, what, why it's here, it's actually really significant and even that word idols, for some of us, depending on your background, you might think of uh, the idea of, say, if you, um, even in our own country, but particularly if you're uh, traveling overseas and you go to certain countries, and there's like, uh, like in the scriptures almost, like very clear uh, deities, gods that are like statues or temples, and, and you, you uh, bow down before them, sometimes in animal configurations or other forms of nature, um, and it's easy to think that's what we're talking about when we set idols, like very blatant, obvious kind of God, like tiki doll almost type of thing. But, but what I would suggest here is that the, the idea of idolatry, it's beyond something just for like ancient peoples or peoples in other countries. But even us right here, if we grasp this thing that's found throughout the scriptures, it can be really significant. Because for most of us, and maybe, maybe you're here with me in this or not, Sometimes when you think about Christianity or you think about Christians who are trying to tell people why you should be a Christian, it's like, you need to be a better person. And just if we can be intellectually honest, some of the best people I know are not Christians. Some of the, just let's, we can edit this one out. If we, some of the worst people I know are Christians. I mean, I mean, that's just being real, Right. I, I, I think we have to get broader than this idea that to be a Christian is just about being a good or not to be a bad person. And I found that understanding through the lens of idolatry is really helpful for me to understand that. Because um, idols, beyond very physical manifestation of idols, like statues, idols is like this idea, almost a, a worldview, because idols in their core essence, they promise you life if you give your devotion to them. 
If you need to think of what is an idol like the Bible talks about, an idol promises you life if you will give your time, your energy, your passions, your resources, um, your personal space, whatever it is, it, it says, give these things to me and I will give you life. That, that your life, as we all, one of the common things about human, being human is we're looking for purpose. We're looking for meaning. And idols promise you, your path to life and meaning is found in this. So bow to this. Give yourself this. And you will achieve the meaning of life. So if we just think very pragmatically, boots on the ground. Um, so for a lot of us in here, and if you don't identify with this, cool. But I know for some of you, like a driving thing in, in our lives is professional success or uh, maybe academic success, like on the way to getting somewhere, going to school, studying hard, working hard, trying to cr- climb the ladder in different ways. And, and I, I want to be clear here, that in itself could be an aspect of idolatry. But in my experience, at least as I talk to many of you, it's not like work itself necessarily is the idol. But maybe it's what the underlying idols promise you from something like work or from school. So, for example, um, maybe one idol is like control. For some of us, the control might be a driving thing that promises you. If you can just have a control in your life. And if you're like some of our stories here, maybe it's that you grew up in an environment where there was absolutely, control was absent. Life was chaotic. You didn't know what was going to happen. And then for you, professional success or making your way is a means to be able to have some kind of control over your life. Or, or maybe some of us, um, maybe you're like me and we grew up with not very much. You know, that was my story. Um, and for me, I'm, one of my idols is security. Just to be open, sometimes there's power to be able to share your One of my idols is security because there's a lot of stress that comes with like not knowing how you're going to pay your bills or feeling like you have to struggle or feeling like you look at other people and you look at how they vacation or they don't got to buy like store brand mac and cheese. They get to get the real craft. You're like, I want the real craft. Oh, maybe it's just me. But it's like, so it's not so much like the work itself is the idolatry, but it's that idea for security, that work is a means by which I can have my means. And, and it offers you life. And, I, and as I'm saying all these things, these things are not bad in and of themselves. It's, these, work is not bad. Security, control. For some of us, like, it might not be work or school, but it's approval. Like wanting someone that you admire or love or look to, to be able to look at you and say, you have done a good job. My daughter, my son, my husband, my wife, my friend, you you are someone that I respect and admire. I approve of you and work then, or, or maybe achieving certain success or notoriety or acclaim. That's like a means for you to be able to get your core idol, which is maybe approval. Does, does that make sense? So it's not just what's on the surface. It's often underlying deeper things that are driving us. But here's the thing. Again, those things in and of themselves are not bad. But here's the problem with idols. Idols promise you the world. Idols tell you, give me all of who you are and I will give you the meaning of life and purpose. But they can never deliver their ultimate promise of life. That's an idol. An idol can never deliver on what it promises you. Idols can't satisfy. 
It's like my wife is amazing, so she's always looking for ways to improve my life. So I've been doing more training for different athletic endeavors, and uh, you got to hydrate. And she got me these cool powders that you can put into the water and mix it up, and it's like it, it improves your hydration because right when you're thirsty, you got to replenish yourself. you got to be hydrated. Water, age to probably the best way. But when you add some of the stuff, it's even better. But anyway, water. But it's like you have just run like a half marathon. You're in training. And you come to the water station. And they give you this big cup. It says Gatorade or water. And you just chug that John down, right? But you start <laughs> choking. Because you realize they've mixed salt in that. Like a little salt's good. You, you need some sodium. But like whole thing salt. Because it looks like water. It promises to quench your thirst. But what happens? You just get thirstier. You feel like choking. That's like the nature of an idol. An idol promises, I will be your meaning of life. Give yourself to this and you will find why you live. But what it will do is actually put you in a place where you're more desperate than before. And maybe some of you have been there, right? You have, you're, you're living the life. You got the job you always thought you wanted. Maybe some of you got a family you thought would satisfy you. You're making money. You even putting money into your retirement. You looking good. I mean, some of you look real good. I mean, you're doing it. But if you're really honest, there's that moment. Sometimes it's late at night for some of us. Sometimes it's the reason some of us need to medicate. Because you look at your life and you're like, is this what it's all about? Why do I then still feel this hole in my life? I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. It possibly could be that we're following the lure of idols. Because again, idols, they promise us life if we follow them on their path. And the path can look really alluring. But part of what we're looking at today is you got to be careful that that path is not going straight off a cliff. It's not leading you to life that it promises. It's actually leading you towards a path of death. All to say, that was just introduction. Don't worry, it's not a two-hour sermon. But John's point is, don't lose sight of all that we've talked about through this whole letter here. Don't lose sight of the path to the only true life. And this path, it's not just a better way of doing life than anyone else. It's found in a relationship. And his name is Jesus. That's what the whole purpose of John has been talking about. Intimacy with God found this relationship with Jesus. And, and we even see some of the some indicators of that here in the passage. With verse 13, chapter 5 says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, he's talking about counter to idols, what really gives life. Verse 20, the same idea. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one that is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John's whole purpose of this letter has been trying to show his audience, y'all looking for life. Here is where true life is found and his name is Jesus so let me pray for us. And just a few points I want to walk us through. Lord, help us. I'm assuming we're here, Lord, whether we want to be or for whatever reason, we're thankful that you have us here, God. Not to just be more religious. Lord, none of us need more of that. Not to just have better life routines. That's helpful. But Lord, that's ultimately not what we need. But we need life. And Lord, if you're offering us this life in you, open our hearts to receive whatever you would speak to us this day. 
Holy Spirit, breathe through this room. Thank you that you know us. Give us open hearts, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the idea is that John wants to provide evidence for why life is found in Jesus. And we see that he's given three witnesses. And there's actually more, but I want to hone in on three witnesses who are the purpose of these witnesses. And picture like a courtroom. And picture that the, the point that we're trying to demonstrate is Jesus is the Son of God. This is the path of life. He's actually life itself. Here then, counselor, present your first witness. And that's what John is doing here. And these three witnesses, we see them in, in verses 6 through 8 in chapter 5. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood. Not by, only, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. So their goal, the case they're trying to make is Jesus is the Son of God. And then here are John's witnesses he's presenting. His testimony. First witness is water. We see that he writes about water in these verses, and there's different interpretations of what water means, and I think there's enough flexibility. But I tend to believe in my own study that John is speaking of Jesus' baptism. He's talking about Jesus' baptism that was done in the water as evidence of who he was. And just in case you're like, well, who are you? Uh, Luther and Calvin also believe that, so I'm going to hang out with my homies Luther and Calvin, right? I'll trust them, right? They also believe that this is speaking of water, of Jesus' baptism. And, and part of this, the reason for this is this is refuting false witnesses, um, false teaching. That there's some beliefs even in those times that Jesus, um, his, the spirit descended on Jesus at the baptism and it departed from him at the cross. Like, there's this idea that Jesus was actually not really who he says was, but it was a very temporal thing that started with his baptism and that ended with the crucifixion. But what John is trying to encourage us here to see is, no, 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 no. He's always been the son of God, and and let me show how. And we see the story of Jesus as he was about to begin his public ministry. He came to his cousin who was called John the Baptist, probably better to call him John the Baptizer. That was his whole gig, right? He just baptized people, invited people to repentance. And Jesus comes to him, and you got to imagine our dude John, right? He's looking, he knows it's his cousin. He's like, he even resists baptizing Jesus at first. He's like, yo, this is a baptism for people who need to repent. Oh, you you don't need to repent. Actually, can you baptize me? Like John actually understood this correctly, but Jesus ends up getting baptized. And we see a description of this in in one of the accounts. This is so important. It's actually in all four gospel stories, which is kind of rare. But verse 16 of chapter 3, it says, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased this is amazing because this is like when you're in court and you're presenting your case. It's like, dun, dun, dun. We have a surprise witness, expert testimony. It's the father himself because this is the father's testimony of who Jesus was. People are thinking, yo, I know, I, I know, homie. He's, he's that dude carpenter from, see, why everyone looking to him like he God now? I, I grew up with him. I was playing like baseball and maybe not baseball. I was, Hanging out with the dude. 
What? What y'all talking about? But the father's voice was clear. Testimony, evidence given. This is my son. And I can see how it was understandable to believe that it just started here with the spirit descending. But that was just public affirmation for all the people in the right timing of God. Because Go search it on your own, but it actually combines some Old Testament scriptures from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Isaiah 42, 1. The Father is just repeating some of those old scriptures. So just to be real clear, baptism, it wasn't making Jesus who he was. It didn't make him to be the Son of God, but it was declaring who he was already publicly. That was the point of baptism. Because if you look at those old... Old Testament verses, it's talking about a king. It's talking about the anointed king. But this is a king like no other. Because most kings throughout our history have been power mongers who've taken advantage of their servants. This king that's spoken about in scripture is so radical, he's called the servant king. We would come to know he's actually the suffering servant. That's our king. That's our Messiah. His regal power is known in suffering And it started right with his baptism. And again, I I just for a moment, I think it's significant that we don't move past it too quickly. Jesus didn't have to get baptized. But it was a sign for him, as shocking as it was for John the Baptist, I think it was probably also scandalous and actually gave ammunition to those who would hate him. Say, if you really are God the way you seem to be saying, I know your miracles are all over the place and amazing, but yo, why do you get baptized like any other schlep? Why are you getting in the water like every, everyone else? If you are truly God, it was Jesus' radical declaration that as a king, he wanted to do kingship totally different. And he identified with those he came to seek and save who were lost. He came to say, I am like you. I don't need baptism for repentance, but I am identifying with the people I love. So that's one witness in the water. Baptism, second witness is the blood. And this is talking about the crucifixion. So he is baptized, but he also died on the cross. And, and, you know, I would encourage you, open source, go read it on your own. It's just amazing. Again, found in all of the different gospel accounts. But I would suggest it is the linchpin upon which our faith stands. So Christmas gets all the pub, probably because of the whole presence thing. But the real significant holiday or memorial for Christians is Easter. Because it's surrounded upon the death of Jesus at Good Friday. And then conquering the ga- grave and sin and death and rising on Easter Sunday. Maybe we should do presents. Maybe no, but it's okay if it's ours, right? But it was the whole idea that Jesus died, that the regal Son of God, spoken of through all the prophecies, it was scandalous that he would die as a criminal. He would die. And, and we, we find a significance of even in places like John 19.30, this just, this always astounds me when it says, It is finished. Jesus says one of his last words were, it is finished. Saying, it's done. Everything you've been studying about, everything you've been worshiping about, all of the sin that you've held, it is finished. Jesus' sacrifice is enough. And for those of us in here, so many religious people I know struggle with a lot of guilt and shame. Sometimes that's not the most inappropriate thing that leads us to Christ. 
But a lot of times it is unhealthy if you are already in Christ. Because you need to remember when he said it is finished, what he meant was y'all don't need to keep trying to save yourself. Y'all trying to be good people and trying to bring offering and sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And we still do that today, right? There is freedom to be known in saying it is finished and now I give my life as a living sacrifice. There's power there. Because we just want to make clear, Jesus, I absolutely believe he was a martyr, but he wasn't just a benevolent martyr. He, he wasn't just a noble example of how we should be in the face of persecution suffering. Because if Jesus is just an example for you, I'm just a terrible preacher. Because <laughs> I am putting a burden upon your shoulders you can't carry. And maybe it's like for some of you who maybe it was a sibling or maybe it was that kid down the street, and you heard every day growing up, did you see what little Johnny did in school? Wow, you should be like Johnny. Or why can't you be athletic? Like whatever it might be, just this burden of examples. Ultimately, the Christian gospel is not about seeing someone and trying to be the example. It's realizing the cross is, the gospel is not about how to be a good person it's the confession that in ourselves, we are not able to be who we were supposed to be. And it's why every single one of us needs a savior. Every one of us. And I love the story that it describes in the crucifixion that there was a Roman centurion. Basically, that's a high-level soldier. He saw this whole crucifixion thing. I mean, Jesus looked like a martyr. He was bloodied, beaten. He did not look very regal. But you know what that centurion said? Oh, truly, this was the Son of God. Like, the crucifixion of Jesus was like eyewitness testimony for this centurion who was not a follower of Jesus, that he really is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. He is the one with the very authority to reconcile a rebellious creation to their creator God. And we see that power displayed in the crucifixion. So we got witness of water, witness of blood. And then... Oh, just 2 Corinthians 5, 21, just honing in. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It describes what happened on the cross as Jesus gave his life. He took our sin for those who trust in him and he gives us his righteousness. It's a good deal. It's a good deal for the Christian. So we have the witness of the crucifixion. We have the witness of the spirit. And so baptism, crucifixion, it's more external evidences, but we also have the witness of the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, the Holy Spirit's witness is external. We read throughout the life of Jesus, his birth, his baptism, all of his ministry, we read of the description of the present spirit who was there. So that was an external evidence. But here's, here's the wild thing. The Spirit's testimony is not just to us. It's not just for us to see, but his testimony, his Holy Spirit's testimony, it describes the Spirit is within us, within us when we follow him. And the, the testimony is in us and through us. What that means, it's again, all relational. It's saying that when you are a Christian, you don't just become someone who starts to do different things or go to different events. That might be part of it, but fundamentally who you are has changed and part of that is you have been given the presence of God's very spirit within you. And what this means is 
you have a voice within you that's telling you you are God's. He is who he says he is. I think that's why reading the scripture is so important because God uses that to continue to tell you who Jesus is and the very spirit within you. It's like a north star. It's like a compass. It just keeps pointing to God is who he says he is. So I think it's within us, but I think it's also the spirit's presence in our community. I know we've got uh, like prayer groups through the summer, but I'm really excited for our community groups to get started again in September. But one of... Some of you, you want community groups because you need someone to be able to go watch Barbie movie with. That's cool, right? Very valid. Cool, right? But for me, ultimately, the reason why community groups are so important is the spirit that's present there, we point one another to the truth of God. Because if you're like most of us here, there are times in life that will cause you to doubt whether God is really who he says he is. That God is really the son of God. Sometimes it's going to be situational. Sometimes it's circumstantial. Sometimes it's evil that you see. Sometimes it's your own struggle. That you're going to doubt, is God really real? And when you get around a whole bunch of other people, and even in your communal struggle, you point one another and say, yo, sometimes it feels like we're really struggling, but God is real. God is present. God loves you. Keep trusting Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit's testimony at work in the people of God. So these three witnesses, water, blood, spirit, the truth of Jesus revealed to us, and if you want to boil down the message of who Jesus is, we find it in verse 11 and 12. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I think we can acknowledge as we see that, depending on where you're at, that can sound kind of like offensive almost. I mean, it, it might even feed some of our feelings of why people don't like Christians because we just bigoted, intolerant. We, how the heck can we tell anyone, here's a path to life, and if you don't follow this path, you don't have the path to life. I mean, that sounds intolerant, but, but what I would encourage you I, I, think it's, I think it's part of there to see who's not on the path of life. That's appropriate. But I actually really like seeing, but who is in? Who can be in? Because the reality, and this requires humility, every single one of us in who we are, we are all out. It's not a better people than others. It's not people raised in this family are somehow given up. It's none of that. In our nature, all of us are out. That's the, the wonder of it, though, is that there is a way in. There is a way into the family. Because knowing the Son of God, it changes everything about life. And I want to just look at a few examples of evidences of life. What does it mean that we know the Son of God? One, there's joy to obey now. There is joy to obey. And one of the languages of idolatry that you see throughout the scriptures, it's identified as slavery. And, and slavery in different ways. But I think in one sense, it's that all of religion is saying you should be a good person. But so often, it's, there's no joy there. It's like compulsion or maybe guilt or responsibility. I mean, I would guess most of us here, 
I mean, the fact that you're in a church on Sunday morning, I give me a little bit of that, but you probably want to do the right thing, but how many of us, we don't always feel like we're fully invested, but we think we should, or that's what a good person does. But what the gospel does, knowing the Son of God, what it does, it actually gives us joy to obey. And we see that in verse 2 there, describing one of those examples. It says, this is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith, what it's saying here is that to follow God and his commands, and his ultimate commands, love the Lord your God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. For some of us, that feels like a huge burden, especially in the previous verses when it said you can't, how can you say you love God and you hate your neighbor? You're like, you don't know my neighbor. They're terrible. Or more specifically here, people in church. I think there's this kind of um, caricature that people in church are like weird, shiny, happy people who are always holding hands and like, always feel like cheery about you know what being in a church does it shows you the depths of our depravity at times that's what it does it doesn't mean we're not redeemed we can absolutely be of God but our flesh still creeps in when we don't get our way you see that even in churches but he's saying if you're a son of God there's something within you that changes the obedience of to God from I have to to I get to, I want to. And I'm not going to say it happens right away. But when we know God, I look at my own life and this, I've shared some of this with you. I was a blatant racist, violent, full of hate. I hated everyone. I even hated other Asian peoples, right? I just hated everyone. But when I encountered, and it wasn't from reading a book, but when I encountered the true God in Jesus, something flipped in me. Something changed in me. Where now I look at people who the world might say, you have nothing in common with. I'm like, hey, brother, hey, sister. Like genuinely, not in weird Christian lingo stuff, but genuinely, something changes. Something within us changes because we don't obey God so he loves us. This is gospel 101 here, right? We don't obey God because so that he will love us. That's the essence of most religious systems. We do something so that we will be approved of. The gospel is the radical flipping of that says, because God loves us, we can now obey. Because, and when we understand how radically he loves us, our natural heartfelt response then is we want to obey. Not out of fear or guilt or obligation, but a response of genuine joy. So we see joy to obey. We also see confidence to pray. When we know the Son of God, we have confidence to pray. In verse 14, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. And, and this, what this just means is, I don't know how some of you pray. Some of you, it's like last day before finals and you're just throwing up a Hail Mary. You're like, I haven't put in the work. If there's a God, come on, at least a C. That's all I need. I'm not even asking for an A. It's kind of like, we're, we're not even sure if there's someone listening to us. What this is saying is if you know God or more accurately, he knows you. You can now approach him in confidence in prayer. It doesn't mean God's going to answer exactly as you think he should. That's, God is not Aladdin, right? Or Aladdin genie. 
But what it does mean is he hears you. You have an open invitation to him. It's why we, I mean, I don't think there's a magic formula, but I like to, even when I teach the little kids to pray, I like to say, in Jesus' name, amen. That's not a magic talisman. But what, is, what that's saying is anytime we come to God, we're not coming because, hey, God, um, I got all these petitions. You should have seen the week I had. I fed my hungry neighbor. I was generous. Yo, I even made it to Bible study. I prayed. So, God, here's my prayers because I've, <laughs> I've earned my prayers this week. The gospel is saying the only way that we come to God with our petitions and prayers in Jesus' name. It's standing on what Jesus has done that we couldn't do. And there's extreme confidence. It's like when I think about, I remember I had a meeting with a pretty high up person in a certain field. And I remember what he told me. He's like, yeah, when you come for the meeting, just tell him that I made this meeting for you. All you just mentioned my name. That's what we do when we pray in Jesus' name. We have access to God. And we say, I'm praying in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And the father's like, give me all you got. Give me all you got because you're family. Pray in confidence. And we see the assurance of faith. And this is a a confusing verse, but verse 18, chapter 5. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And I'm guessing maybe some of you heard that verse, and you're like, Oh, heck, I'm in trouble because I sinned on the way over here multiple times. I mean, people cutting me off. They getting my coffee order wrong. My toast was burnt. You know, I, man, i thinking murderous thoughts already. Oh, am I not born of God? Because I was sinning like the devil this morning. I think, I, I do think there's some validity. Part of it, it is addressing patterns of habitual sin, I think. That I think there's validity here that when you are truly of God, just your propensity to sin, to be in uh, patterns of sin, it should decrease. It doesn't mean you f- you're perfect, but there should be a wrestling. There should be an acknowledgement. I, I actually don't want this. Whereas before, I didn't even care. Like something within us does change. But I think this is actually talking about something even of more significance than that here. Because we know from the rest of the letter, John talks about if you do sin, like he acknowledges that Christians sin. So it's not a question of that. But that part there in verse 18, the second half where it says, the one who is born of God keeps him. Now, I actually don't like our translation as much because I prefer some of the interpretations and translations where I write it says, the one with capital O, because it's, it's speaking of Jesus. Because it, we don't keep him, he keeps us. That's what it's saying in verse 18 there. The one who was born of God. It's speaking of Jesus. Though he was fully God, what did he choose to do? He became born into the world just like every single one of us. He identified with our lives, our struggles, our pains. He became like in our world. And that is the one who keeps us. So I loved, we had a great day as mentioned at the beach yesterday. Beach day, best day, is that what we said? It was a I don't know best, but because Philly's won at night. I guess it does make it the best, right? But it was a great day, and, but I just found so much joy in this. It was funny. 
I was looking, and, and some of the dads, because there was a little, it wasn't a cliff, right? But it was like a little ditch where it goes down into the water. And if you got like long legs, you can walk down there. If you got like baby legs like this, you tumbling over that thing, right? But what do little dudes do? They all running for the cliff, right? They all running for the cliff. But I love it because it's like some of these dads, it's like they're playing goalie for World Cup, right? They're like just watching. And sometimes they'll like pack like they're not. And the kid like thinks they got it. And they like run for it. And then, and, and just, it, it gives me the image of that's how the Lord is keeping us. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. Sometimes it doesn't even mean that we don't feel like we're losing to sin. And maybe some of you have even walked in here feeling like all you have to do is wake up and you sin, you disobey, you fall to perpetual habits, uh, maybe anger or unforgiveness or lust or addictions, whatever it might be, and you feel like I'm never going to win. What our hope here is saying is you have one who is keeping you. You have one who's there, and you might even feel like you're getting close to falling off the cliff, but he will catch you. He's there with you. He's a good older brother who will not ultimately let you fall fully to the enemy, even if you think you might. And the hope is ultimately, in this life, we will still sin, but we're being prepared for an eternity where there's no more fighting with sin. But until that day, we have the Son of God who will keep us. That's your hope, Christian. That's your hope. Stand confidently. You are not just subject to the one who is trying to keep you in evil and darkness. And you have been given the faith of victory. Keep fighting. Keep fighting with the assurance of faith. So we've talked about just the joy of seeing Jesus and life in him. And I just want to simply give an opportunity here for you to respond to that, whatever that looks like for you. And we have um, a QR code here again. If for those of you who are anti-QR code, I'm sorry we've been doing so much of it. It's really helpful though. But I want to ask you right now, if you, if you have a phone, if you want to click on that for a moment, because it takes you to a page where you can respond in different ways. So if you got a phone, click on there. And just a couple of, there's a lot of ways you can respond, but one that I want to offer to you, some of you in this room, God is inviting into the new life found in the Son of God in Jesus. You've been here, you've been walking the community, you've been hearing the gospel, and I hope you've been seeing this is more than just new information, it's actually new life. If that's you, I would encourage you, let us know. Just check off the box saying, I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. And we'd love to talk more with you about that. But you don't need someone to walk you through that. You can right here say, all right, I want to be in God's family. I trust Jesus. And sometimes, I know some of us, we're waiting to have it all figured out. But one verse that encourages me, John 1.12, it's not on the screen. But it says, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Being a Christian is not jumping through all the hoops. It's not getting your life perfect. But ultimately it's saying, I need a savior. And I believe Jesus gave his life for me. So I want to be in his family. I want to be in the family of God. And that's you. I would encourage you, don't keep that to yourself. Don't hesitate. 
This part might scare some of you. Some of us, I think, you've even been in church your whole life. Throughout 15 years of this church, I've been astounded how many people have been in church their whole life. And because they have, no one's ever asked them, do you truly believe in Jesus? Do you follow him or not? And if I could just invite you, take off that shame. Even if people would be surprised here, it's okay. Who cares? Confess that you want to follow Jesus. You need to be forgiven of your rebellion. And you want to be brought into family. And in the same way, you also see the option for baptism. And in our church, baptism, we don't believe baptism makes you a Christian. But if you have genuinely decided to follow Jesus and you have not been baptized as a believer, even if maybe you were baptized as a baby, in our church, we affirm that baptism is for those who would trust and believe in Christ. We invite you, let us know. We would love to walk with you as you express, just like Jesus did, the fullness of his faith publicly. Check that off. We're planning a baptism service, I think even next month. It's just a big celebration. We would love to talk with you to see if that's where you are in your journey. So you can keep that open and go to it and just, again, fight the hesitation, but let us know how you want to respond. And there's other ways there as well. I'm going to ask us to stand. I'm going to invite our music team to come up and prepare to lead us in response. And as they do that, I do want to ask you, how are you going to respond today? For some of you, hopefully today has been a confirmation, I do belong to God. I'm in his family. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. Jesus is my great bigger brother. He's protecting me. He's given me confidence to come to God. And if that's you, today as you come to the Lord's Supper, can it be your stand of conviction encourage, putting your trust in. That's why we do this weekly, to set our gaze on Jesus, because we forget. And for some of you, again, maybe today is a day that you say, yeah, I've been hearing this gospel for a little while. I think I want to follow Jesus. I want to talk with someone. Wherever you're at in that, receive communion. Maybe today is your first time declaring, I follow this Jesus as the Son of God. And we'd love to talk with you if that's there. And maybe you're not at that point. Maybe you're still exploring. And I hope you hear this sincerely. I'm so glad you're here. It's just amazing to me. Be present here because God doesn't have a timetable. Be open to how he might be speaking. Be open how he's using the people around you. But I would also encourage you, don't delay unnecessarily. Because the beauty about Jesus when, what we do when we come to the table and remember his body and his blood, he saw us enslaved. Jesus saw us enslaved by the very things that we thought we would save us, by the idols that had promised us life. He saw that. And though this Jesus, he has all the rights of a king, what the Son of God did was he laid down his glory to free us from sin and offer us a place in his Father's house. So wherever you're at on this journey, I would invite you to do singing through the Lord's Supper. Lift your gaze to this Jesus. Look at Jesus. I know that sounds really simplistic. Look at Jesus. See who he is and see what he's done for you. See what he's inviting you into. Lord, we come to you right now. 
As a church, God, it's just so easy to get distracted by things that are not core. Important, maybe. But Lord, even today, remind us that in the center of all is Jesus. It's not about us being good people who even look down our nose at anyone. What right does any Christian have in that? All we can do is point one another to one who's given us life when we were walking towards death. So we remember that right now through the supper. We fix our gaze on you. We elevate you through song, through prayer. Draw us to yourself, especially in new life, Lord. So come up during this next song. Take one of these back, and we'll take it all together after the song. But let's sing, let's pray, and let's continue to lift our gaze to the Lord.